Through the Keyhole is fueled by Vanessa House Beer Company, located in Automobile Alley at 118 Northwest 8th Street in Oklahoma City. Stop by the tap room and try the legendary 401k lager or the refreshing destination wedding cerveza with salt and lime. Vanessa House is always brewing something fun like the Pog Hard Seltzer or their sweet and tasty sours. Great beers for a hot Oklahoma summer as we march towards football season. Stop by the Vanessa House Tap Room at 118 Northwest 8th Street in Oklahoma City for good drinks and family-friendly good times. Kids and pets are welcome. Yes, I mentioned kids and pets in the same sentence. Vanessa House Beer Company, the best beer in Oklahoma City. Please drink responsibly. Welcome to Through the Keyhole, an OU fan uh, podcast. We may be dropping the fan part. I don't know, but Brady brings a lot more professionalism to this than uh, we had previously. So maybe we're turning back. Well, you feel it just feels like you do. Uh, uh, But I am one of the co hosts, Peyton Guthrie, uh, joined as always with uh, our producer, Matt Burton, Alan Alan Tantrum. That would be interesting. Uh, Brady and Alan Kenny. Uh, let's just uh, around the horn to a certain degree. If you guys still watch that show, I used to watch that religiously back in the day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Matt, how's it going up in the uh, OKC area? Are you guys are you guys getting hit with the? Uh, it's ninety eight degrees where I am right now. Are you guys getting? Is it is it the sun boiling it's, in the OKC metro? Yes, it is absolutely baking today. Luckily, uh, we got to go over to uh, my my fiance's grandparents' house. They got a nice pool. So I've been I've been chilling out in the pool, getting some sun. So I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying the weather. Man, now we kind of know. I mean, yeah. Okay, now we know that. Yeah, I shouldn't have said situation. that. Now you guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you guys are gonna want to come over all the time. <laughs> Get the wings on the Barbie, uh, <laughs> Brady. With the with the OU polo on, really getting in, get the coach's polo, really getting into the mood today. How how's it going on on your side of it, man? This is like a this is a 2004 era polo too i got it from uh i actually got it the day we ran into each other at norman music fest um not at uh not at the vintage wear i don't know if we could say that do we have a relationship with them at all or i, I don't know no, but rules. we could uh, yeah we, yeah um it's on main street um over by stash and norman so we'll just say that for now maybe maybe we can in the future uh but there was just like a clothing like tent and there were some like old clothes for sale and my girlfriend jessica found this and boom um it even has like the uh i don't even know what to call that but it makes it makes your biceps feel bigger because it just like sticks to your arm but anyway um i even forgot what you asked who gives a shit about my polo page <laughs> the last one around alan uh, obviously in a much different part of the the country than we are uh is it still i mean i, I guess it's somewhere all the way around but what's it like over there right now how's it going man oh good man you know it's finally heating up a little bit we had some uh some bad weather this week in terms of just a lot of rain but you know uh the uh the baking heat has yet to hit here that's good I, something guys if you guys don't follow alan on twitter uh, at blatant homerism every once in a while you get a really nice movie review uh, i haven't seen one lately but usually it's always the, the last sentence is always could have been 30 minutes shorter 
So <laughs> if you can hold on, <laughs> watch uh, watch them out for the movie reviews. They're pretty good. They're pretty, oh, I just uh, I just gave one. I watched I watched um Extraction two the other night. It's a solid. I just gave it a B. I don't know. I wasn't. I, I didn't give it a lot of thought. It was good enough. I mean, kept me entertained. It wasn't too long. The last one was like two and a half, two and a half hours. This one was about two hours and four minutes. Perfect. Yeah, I remember a few a few years ago I was doing some. Um, I was watching all the old Stephen King movies. Those are 90 minutes at a pop, man. They're yeah, in, boom, boom, they're boom. out. Yeah. Cujo, I was like, let's go. Let's, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, now every movie is like almost three hours long. It feels like for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. My roommate, Matt, who was just on the Patreon pod, I guess we'll plug that, the little watch yeah. along, listen along. Um, I just, that Matt Burton, our producer, put out on Saturday at 11 because that's when OU football games start. Um, did UTEP with him. So there's going to be games to come over the next few weekends on Saturday. So look for that page. If you are interested, check out Patreon at patreon.com slash through the keyhole. But my roommate, Matt started uh, rewatching black mirror and I missed the first episode that he, he watched the second episode. And that, that thing is like, okay, we get it. And then there's still like an hour and a half left and it's an hour and a half of, we get it. The future sucks. We get it. The society sucks. It's like, please resolve yourself. I, I don't understand why. Like you would imagine with how Hollywood is all about wanting to save money um, through by any means necessary that they decide, let's make these things longer. Let's bloat, bloat these things harder. It doesn't make sense to me. It's annoying. As Brady did mention, uh, the Patreon at patreon.com slash through the keyhole. Now, Brady back, we're pumping out a lot more content, a lot more consistency at, at this point in time. I will say uh, very happy uh, to be part of this. Alan as well, his writing has navigated from the old landing spot over onto the Patreon itself. Uh, this is the best place to catch all of uh, Alan's writing and podcasts, as well as Brady doing write-ups. Uh, and then we have some off-season uh, content continually rolling. Uh, just this week, we've got a Brady's Monday post. Uh, I have a podcast of a, a West Virginia insider to kind of talk about their very eventful off season and, you know, win one for old hugs type of a thing, uh, <laughs> a momentum that's going on right now for them, uh, which is very, very strange to be honest with you. Uh, but we're rolling through this stuff. This is where you can find these things. You can find the watch alongs. You can find the uh, film review breakdowns or positional uh, breakdowns. Uh, there's a lot more content being pushed out from that side. Uh, but again, for a dollar, four dollars, or five dollars, the tiers are all broken down. Uh, we'd appreciate if you guys uh, come and join us if you like us. Uh, but I think that's about it for the for the Patreon push. We'll be pushing that a little bit. Uh, but we appreciate it. But we'll start off with recruiting. I mean, we're deep into the offseason at this point in time. We know you did land two uh, recruits recently, a uh, wide receiver out Fort Worth and a linebacker slash, I believe he, he said he's going to be, he's been recruited to play the cheetah position uh, out of North Carolina. We'll start off with, uh, Alan, I, you know how to say his last name, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we'll start off with Dozy Izukama. I believe it says a comma, yeah. Izukama, sweet, out of Fort Worth. A younger brother of a former Texas Tech wide receiver and current Miami Dolphins wide receiver, I believe. Uh a, a player that I believe OU passed on uh, or did not try to recruit very heavily the first time around. Uh, it does kind of suck when you have Texas Tech kind of scooping up some guys in your region, which would fit very well on your team. Uh, but OU picking him up, a three-star wide receiver. Uh, I think he's decently tall at this point in time. I have his recruiting thing in front of me. 6'2", 180. Uh, should be good for the uh, wide receiver thing. Wide receiver recruiting, which... I mean, last year, in my opinion, had a lot to be desired. <laughs> they only have one guy who actually made it 
<laughs> to campus uh, from that class. Now, Petaway, from all intents and purposes, should be very, very good. The should be does a lot of work on that sentence, though. Uh, the OU also gets uh, at least a verbal commit uh, of James Nesta out of North Carolina to play the cheetah position at 6'4", uh, 205 at that point in time, bringing in another three-star guy, but still two three-star uh, recruits. And this kind of fits the mold for Brent Venables uh, and staff in the summer times when you're getting a lot of foundational three-star guys and then the four and the fives. If OU gets them, they're getting them later on in that side of it. Uh, Brady, I remember us talking maybe over the weekend or uh, inside the Senate about the idea of these highly touted skill players and maybe they just seem potentially recently not kind of landing the same way they do at other places. Uh, are, are you thinking it's okay for OU to be kind of filling this roster of these three-star, maybe uh, uh, physical physical guys, these physical traits, beyond just, hey, we're trying to go for the high four-star, low five-star wide receiver, and let's hope they work. Like, you know, the 2019 class, none of those dudes worked out in the way that OU wanted them to, uh, but they're able to make hay and be able to continue the beast with these three-star type of recruits, especially on the offensive side of the ball, within this air raid. And I think we lost Brady at that point in time. Or he, oh, did you, we lost him. I'm back uh, now. Oh, you're back now. Basically, the three-star wide receiver. Do you like him? Because last time we talked, you said you hated five-star wide receivers. <laughs> I, what I mean by that, it's silly to say like, oh, if we've got a chance at a five-star wide receiver, of course, take them. Like they're the most, they're clearly by all tens purposes, the most talented player at that position. So you take them to your campus. My problem has just been historically speaking, if you're talking about OU and receivers and that's say, albeit a fairly small history because they had running attacks and wishbones up until the early nineties and then the two thousands with Bob and the air raid. So um, you're talking about, you know, about a list of 15 to 20 receivers that you can list very quickly over the last 23 years. And how many of those guys were five stars? Uh, I think CD lamb is probably the most ballyhooed recruit at receiver to come to OU that met and exceeded his expectations. Um, everybody else, like every other five-star superstar can't miss wide receiver recruit that I'm trying to remember, um, flamed out, did not meet expectations, um, often disgraced themselves. If you're talking about like a guy like Trey McGuire, um, uh, Trajan Bridges, uh, Josh Jarbeau, to name a few. And, and of course, not all of them disgraced themselves. I mean, Theo Weiss is a great kid. And when his number was called, got opportunity, made the most of him. He just wasn't a five-star can't miss uh, recruit and I think especially in 2019 just imagine where our heads were at the time um, this is right after LSU um, or right before LSU spanks um, OU in the Peach Bowl that season with a bunch of great receivers and so it seems like you just need a quarterback and great receiver play and an okay not great defense and you're set and OU signs three five-star receivers and they just play like that that's to me, it's just more of like historically speaking, Scarred is an OU fan. I like the Mark, the Antoine Savages, uh, the Kenny Stills, the guys that are uh, maybe not as highly recruited um, across the board, but when they get on campus, they're dogs. So that's kind of the hope this season is that Jaleel Farouk is a dog. Um, Petaway, albeit not being an early enrollee, that kind of sucks. Um, hopefully he's a dog, but 
Uh, this kid out of Fort Worth, um, the pedigree is there. Like you mentioned, his brother plays for the Dolphins and was uh, pretty damn good. And I'm going to defer to Emmett Jones. I think Emmett Jones, that's that's kind of the, the big selling point for me as a fan until we start seeing some uh, results on the field or just whatever it may be on the field. Um, Emmett, Emmett uh, Jones seems to be the guy – uh, that can identify talent and get the most out of the talent that he brings on campus. So um, I'm excited about it. And quite frankly, we just need guys that can come on, come on the team and catch the ball. So there should be bountiful amounts of opportunity. So hopefully that attracts uh, kids this season and uh, over the next few years, because OU needs them. And the, the interesting part about you're talking about CD lamb uh, and you also mentioned LSU earlier is that, you know, OU, in all intents and purposes, should not have gotten C.D. Lamb. Uh, he's very much so ready to sign for LSU, and LSU told him no, we're full. Uh, you know, and allowing him to come back uh, had been committed, decommitted from OU, then was able to come back. OU was able to secure his uh, his signature. And if you go back further in that, uh, Sterling Shepard was a 95, uh, according to uh, uh, 24-7 Sports. C.D. Lamb's only a 91. You know, the rating stuff gets kind of like you're splitting hairs at that point in time. Uh but then OU also gets uh, James Nesta from the cheetah position. Um, Alan, I do want to me- ask you a question unprompted. I apologize for this. And James says, he out loud says, hey, I'm being recruited for the cheetah position. I'm, I did uh, the very first uh, article, part one of a three-part series over the cheetah position, very basic level, uh, really looking at what Deshaun White was able to do. Uh, next week, we'll look at what... Um, uh, Deshaun McCullough is going to do, and then we'll look at what happened at Clemson and how like Isaiah Thomas and things of those natures, Isaiah Thomas was Isaiah Simmons, um, how he handled all that stuff and how he handled that position there. Deshaun White played it really much like a linebacker and Deshaun McCullough, Indiana was basically an edge player. <laughs> so I really don't know what the cheat position really means in any way, shape or form uh, with these two guys coming in here. Do you think Brent wants this positional disposition to be more of a secondary type player? Or do you think he's this version of it back at Oklahoma, it being more of a force player playing within that five yard range from the line scrimmage is where it, where it needs to be moving into the sec, I guess. Uh, Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is um, I think it depends on who you have. Yeah. You want to plug in. I mean, don't let your mind be like, um, limited you know what i mean your 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 idea of what or you can do be limited think about like the different you know roles and different opportunities there are to put players in different positions i mean that's in my opinion that's actually one of the things that has made Brent venable so good over time is looking at unique skill sets like an isaiah simmons um and figuring out the best way to deploy them you know looking at the uh you know i mean you know, Deshaun White, obviously, he did play the position more like a linebacker. He covered as well as he could, right? But, you know, I mean, if you've got, if you've got, for example, if you've got three, you know, strong defensive linemen and you feel like you can control the run blocks with five guys, then, you know, maybe you do have a, a more of a, a chaos maker out there, a, a rusher, you know, type, or maybe, you know, you have a, a guy who can cover better. I mean, it's, it's all about kind of finding, taking the best, you know, best of what you have and deploying it the right way. Sorry, playing with the mute button. My dogs have decided they saw something outside. Uh, no, they got, uh, they got, they got recruited to play cheetah too. So, I mean, everyone's getting recruited yeah, to play cheetah. They're ready for it. They're ready yeah, for it. Yeah. I mean, like, and that's part of the thing too, though, is like how many guys have they recruited to play cheetah? It sounds like that's kind of the standard pitch for linebackers 
right? I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the philosophy though is just basically everybody um, in between nose guard, like big nose guard that you ideally hopefully get in this class starting off and then for years to come in between that position and body type and uh, cornerback, you basically have like in an ideal world, a bunch of positionless guys who can perform a lot of different tasks and duties. Um, that's impossible. I mean, that, that would be great to have, but you want to be able to count on linebackers to, in a pinch, be able to cover as well as they um, uh, stop run gaps or blitz. You, you would like um, a standing uh, defensive end to be able to drop back and cover the flat as well as they do speed rushing. Like you just want a bunch of guys that can perform a bunch of different things, especially in Brent Venables' defense where he asks his guys to do a lot of different things. And so um, it, it's funny at this point because, I mean, you could probably make a Google doc of how many players have been or have at least claimed that uh, they're being uh, recruited as a cheetah. But I, I think the general philosophy is um, I think it's genuine. Like, that just means they have enough faith in you, at least in high school, that you have the ability to do a lot of different things. And so that, to me, excites me more than just seeing like the three or the four stars next to these kids' names. Is If Brent Venables thinks that they have the athleticism to do a lot of different things, I'm going to believe that, um, of course, until you know disaster mode potentially happens down the road. But I'm going to believe that more so than just being hyper-focused on uh, recruiting rankings. Yeah, the, the the issue, in my opinion, of that with what you're mentioning about the, having this edge guy who can drop to the flat and maybe drop back a little bit, and that being the, the that cheetah position, is that then you're you're kind of at that point in time you are limiting yourself to running a, a three three five potentially or you know a three two six uh, something of that nature in order to make sure you got the coverage guys and in the, in the secondary to kind of cover everything from that perspective because Brent, especially on the spring game. Um, the the, uh, the touchdown the the Blake Smith was a coverage bust from Deshaun. I mean, he was supposed to drop and follow that guy 30 yards down the field. <laughs> That's the hard part of that position that it's going to be interesting to see if that just holds up to the rigors of what's happening at that point in time. Um, and then I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm uh, overreacting to a three-down lineman. If you look at the Nebraska game, which I did for the breakdown of all the good stuff Deshaun White did, OU was like exclusively in three-down linemen and just shoved them around like nobody's business. That said, Nebraska is a really bad football team. So take that for what you will. Um, but it, it is kind of is at that point in time. Uh, and then also some fun stuff. I mean, OU, um, let's look at some positives. OU currently has a chance, and it does seem to be trending this way, to land two top two of the top 10 in their positions uh, this coming this summer slash fall slash December with two top 10 running backs and two top 10 defensive linemen. You know, DeMarco Murray is kind of really making his money this year. I mean, he has been good. He's gotten good guys. I do like the, the running backs on the on the team right here. But the, the teams, the players he's trying to bring in now, OU getting a lot of flips from USC. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, to OU with Tatum uh, working with um, the uh, baseball coach. Uh, man, my brain is melting down. Baseball coach's name, Matt. Skip Johnson. Skip Johnson. For two sport U, getting that flip over there, potentially however this stuff works out uh, and then also getting the the other running back that's like really really trending towards those direction would get them two top 10 guys right there are we finally seeing demarco at this point in time really 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 earning that paycheck and really kind of saying i'm here i'm entrenched this is who we need to go for and those recruiting chops finally paying off because earlier on in his career 
he missed out on some guys. Now, uh, McClellan and Kamar uh, Wheaton, maybe those weren't misses, but at the time, they seemed like misses. Uh, but now it seems like DeMarco's really, like, the fastball's being grooved over the plate for him at that point in time. But, Brady, do you think DeMarco is now, like, I don't know, maybe, like, getting the groove of this recruiting? and, and or, or is it just the idea that certain cats have different ways of being talked to and they're going to commit and this, the overall machine of OU has gotten better? I think when you're anytime you're dealing with a young assistant coach and especially with DeMarco, like his is a very unique uh, situation where, I mean, it's not unique that players leave their playing days and then immediately jump into the assistant um, coaching ranks. That's fairly frequent, but it's really rare when it's a player of the magnitude of DeMarco Murray, who before he became an assistant at uh, what was it, Arizona, he was, um, he was a, I did think he did a year of color commentary for Fox and he was pretty damn good. Um, he's charismatic and, spe- and speaks really well. So I thought he had kind of a cool future ahead of him, but he got into the coaching. But just before that, he was in the NFL. Like he was playing for Tennessee at the end of his career. Um, wasn't near where he was with Dallas when he was the offensive player of the year in the early 2010s. But uh, it's unique in that situation that a player of the level of his magnitude quickly joined the coaching ranks. Um, but like you had mentioned, yeah, he, he on paper missed out on some recruits, but I've always kind of just assumed that that had more to do with, well, he's walking into a situation where relationships have either been fostered with the previous um, assistant coach who sucks. Jay Bulware is one of the worst assistant coaches to ever step through Norman. That guy was fucking terrible. Um, But uh, either fostered with him or ruined by him. So DeMarco just has to kind of like come into that situation just like, where am I supposed to go? Where should I allocate my resources? Here's who we have on paper. Should I go all in on that? Um, so I could see that being very frustrating, very confusing for a young assistant, even um, coaching at a place like his alma mater, like OU. Um, it was just going to take some time. And the fortunate thing for him is he had some good running backs already on the roster that he could start to build relationships with and start to um, start taking some credit for their development, I guess you could say. So I think for DeMarco, it's gone according to plan. And this is about the time that I was going to expect, all right, start winning some battles. Like I've given you the grace of a few years on the job. Now is the time where you start winning battles. And at least at this point, even though we have a handful of months until December when it actually matters, it seems to be, um, that seems to be uh, bearing fruit, fortunately, for OU and DeMarco. And we'll follow the same theme of pushing the defensive questions to Allen. I don't know how that happened this time, just how my brain's working. Uh, but on the defensive line, OU's lined up potentially, again, lined up potentially, who knows, until they actually sign. And at that point in time, they need to get on the get on uh, a campus. You got David Stone and Williams. Luminary. Awesome. Thank you so much. We need a sound bite for that. Uh, and also, if you look, just go a little bit further down, uh, Nigel Smith, the second, uh, 24-7 has him forecast 100% to OU as well. Looking at picking up you know, three top 12 uh, defensive linemen at that point in time. I know this is a position of great need for Oklahoma. It's a position of great need for any SEC, any SEC team, you know, bar none. If you're wanting to make pushes, you're wanting to do the things that University of Oklahoma is wanting to do at this point in time. Uh, and we probably have talked about this, you know, ad nauseum, but there's always new people coming in listening. Does this, is this defensive line class like the make or break? Potentially, here's my personal opinion. If Brent doesn't sign these guys and these guys don't turn out to be the five-star players they're being rated, this is this is this is a make a borderline make break 
for the future of preventables and it being able to, you know, have this team ready to kind of roll into this stuff, uh, you know, looking at sec championships and things of that nature. Um, do you think this is, I mean, it, it's all hands on deck to get these players, these specific, specifically these defensive linemen. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, no, this is I mean, make or break is, uh, you know, uh, dramatic, but this would help a whole hell of a lot. You know, I mean, Brent Venables was working after after establishing himself, you know, as Clemson's defensive coordinator for after three, four years. I mean, you know, they really started landing big-time defensive linemen. And, uh, you know, is that really kind of, in a lot of ways, uh, aside from all the creativity there at Clemson, really kind of defined that whole era. Um looking at it now, you know, I mean, he's dealt with a lot of kind of, I mean, I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, like replacement level players. I mean, these aren't like NFL caliber guys that um, OU's had on the defensive line. Um, so, you know, the idea that, uh, that these guys will kind of determine how things go. I mean, I don't think that's entirely off base. No. I think, I think it might be a little too harsh just from the standpoint of, it has to be these guys that he has to land because that's because the way you kind of phrased it, Peyton, was that was A, and then B is they have to be those players. Like they have to be as good as their recruiting hype is. I think, and I only think this because, I mean, we've all been OU fans. We've all been college football fans for a long time at this point. And so we know that when you think you've got to recruit, not all, it doesn't always work out all the time that you A, have them, or B, you get them, and then they become – uh, what you hope that they have been. We just talked about receivers for that very reason. Um, I think nightmare scenario, he doesn't land. I mean, obviously the nightmare would be, he doesn't land any of them, but let's say that the uh, Williams kid who's at Georgia right now, maybe he ends up going to Georgia. Um, I think as an OU fan, I would understand if a nose guard, um, nose tackle, excuse me, wants to go to Georgia over OU, uh, it would still hurt. And it would be a loss for the staff. But then I would, my brain would immediately go to, I still have faith in Brent Venables, the defensive mind and the defensive developer um, as a coach that whoever you get now, whether they be less recruited, less ballyhooed, whatever it may be, you must develop them. That's it. Like I want these players. I want them bad. Cause I, I think OU fans are just very tired of just having to wish cast they're, as you mentioned, Alan, um, they're replacement level players, maybe performing above and beyond their capabilities um, and hoping for that. So I want to sign these players as well so that we can put those expectations through a realistic higher ceiling. Uh, but I don't think it's the make or break that he signs all of them. I, I think the make or break is if you sign them and they don't develop, that's a bad sign. If you don't sign them because one of them wants to go to, I mean, God forbid, Georgia over Oklahoma, you've got to just accept that for the time being and do with what you can as best as you can. And that's what good coaches do. That's what Bob Stoops did early in his career. He gets Tommy Harris, um, but he gets Tommy Harris and Dustin Dvorak early on, but he didn't have five-star recruits across the board either. So you got to make do with what you got, and that's what good coaches do. Yeah, and I think though, I think, I think though, I mean, I think if they don't get at least one of the three, 
that Peyton named, that that's it's going to be hard to come back from that. I mean, they need you know blue chip level talent at yeah. least, right? Yeah. They're, so they're, I mean, yeah, they're getting David Stone though. Like, this is this is like who's going to be the number one number one overall pick in the NBA draft? I don't know. Like they're going to get David Stone. Like, so you know, you had David Hicks until they didn't. I yeah, mean, it, I mean that's it, it changes that's, fast. Especially, it, I, it does. I mean the way the way they're doing with NIL too with defensive tackles. I mean they're up there with quarterbacks in terms of who's getting the most money. I mean you never know what kind of offer Oregon will throw out the last minute or something. I mean I just it's a it's a tough one right now. Have y'all like actually looked through? Um, is it on three that puts the NIL? projected amount for every recruit have you guys yes which is just an insane fake fake number (laughs) that is like where where is this based in any sense of reality this is so this is so silly i actually feel bad for the kid because you know there's like some three star that is going to go to wyoming which i guess would be a good thing for wyoming and they're going to say i'm worth two hundred twenty five thousand dollars. that's awesome like take that take that money to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and just paint the town red, my my friend. The Wyoming, the Wyoming coach is like, yeah, the check is in the mail. Yeah, it's the check's on he's its like, way. Sure, yeah. He's like, I don't even get paid two hundred twenty five thousand dollars. I'm a D one football coach. Enjoy great food and drinks at the original Norman Hotspot and its first cocktail bar. Scratch Kitchen and Cocktails is our choice for quality meals and drinks to enjoy the next time you're looking for a great night out. With locations in historic downtown Norman on Main Street and the Paseo Arts District in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma fans from all over the metro can enjoy Scratch Kitchen and Cocktails. Also, be sure to pick up or ask about Scratch's ready-made old-fashioned cocktail at your local wine and spirit store. Take the best Scratch concoction home to sit on your lounge chair and continue listening to this episode scratch kitchen and cocktails great food drinks and atmosphere all right so that that wraps us up on the recruiting stuff um we'll, we'll kind of touch some points on this stuff here in a second uh but we did have some uh, just just a bit of like some social media you know internet science stuff kind of going back and forth and we'll start off with the larger story or just the one uh one of our uh, co-hosts had some a bit more fire in his belly about uh, Josh Pate did a, an interesting uh, concept there of just like tweeting out a, a vague statement and then pretends like, Oh no, I didn't know people had thoughts and feelings. Uh, <laughs> uh, but messaging like, how do you feel about Lincoln Riley or what are your thoughts on Lincoln Riley? Um, I saw some OU fans say some very negative things. I know one of them was, I wish he was on the submarine, which is a bit rough, <laughs> but, uh, but funny. Um, F around, you know, uh, FAFO to a certain degree for those uh, billionaires doing that stuff. Uh, but I think it's very interesting there. And he comes back and he basically kind of paints that entire picture of saying, well, people say Lincoln Rally is overrated. And he kind of goes this whole thing about, well, what's rated? Like, what is he actually rated? And if you're saying he's overrated, then like no one's saying he's better than Nick Saban. No one's saying he's better than, than Kirby Smart. But, you know, anything after that, you're kind of like splitting hairs. So I guess you'd put Davo there, then you know, it's Ryan Day or him, you know, at that point in time, it's like, yeah, put people where you want to put them. Uh, I've got some thoughts on it, but Brady, you had some, uh, I mean, you brought this up and asked if if we wanted to talk about it. So you've got Josh Pate basically kind of like, I don't know, carrying some water for Lincoln Riley and USC to a certain degree uh, on this show, but give us the, give us the unfiltered, the unfiltered, uncensored thoughts on it, man. 
Oh, I mean, I think we've talked about, I mean, we talked about this, what last week, Alan, where we, we kind of just ask ourselves, why do these media types seem to love the hotshot offensive coordinator who becomes a head coach? And we kind of went back and forth and there's a, a bit of bleed over into this thought, I guess, but I mean, it makes sense why Josh paid or anybody would like Lincoln Riley, because it's really easy to predict his teams. It makes their jobs easier. Hey, he just signed the best quarterback in the country He's go, He's good enough to start day one. I mean, put him on your early list for Heisman candidates because he's had three of the last six Heisman Trophy winners, and he even had Jalen Hurts, who if Joe Burrow had gone to Nebraska, like he probably should have, Jalen Hurts probably is the fourth of the last six Heisman Trophy winners that particular season. So there's a lot to like with Lincoln Riley. There's a lot to like with his teams. Um, but as OU fans, we know a little bit more about the dark side of it, and the USC fans are just like we were – I guess in 2018, 19, uh, we either just refused to see it or maybe we had the uh, good grace of, well, I mean, this isn't just our first time with Lincoln Riley. This is his first time. So there was nothing to really base it off of back then. But I mean, again, with Lincoln, it's really obvious how he succeeds. He gets the best quarterback in the country and that's on him. You know, that that's a good thing for him. It's not a luck thing. He is uh, somewhat earned that ability to um, attract uh, the top quarterbacks in the country every single or every other year, like he, like how he has to recruit quarterbacks. And then it trickles down from there. Like the quarterback brings in um, hot shot players, the transfer portal, the, the, the quarterback brings in hot shot skill position players via recruiting. Like it, it just, it's just trickled down with Lincoln Riley. And there's really a lack of attention to detail on the fringes. So to me, it's just really easy to predict his teams, but it's also really easy to understand why he doesn't succeed. Because the other thing that Josh Pate talked about was, oh, I talked to some DC and we talked about his teams and how, well, fans like to blame the defensive coordinator or a coordinator if things are going wrong. And they think that if you just replace the coordinator, it's going to get better. Uh, but really what the problem is, is a culture problem. And I'm like, yes, but wouldn't that be Lincoln Riley's fault? He's the guy who's in charge. But I think the problem is, is Lincoln tries to run a program like this. I'm the offensive coordinator. You're the defensive coordinator. You go over there, make sure they know how to tackle, and then we'll meet on Saturday and it better fucking work. And that hasn't worked for him because that's how he wants to run things. He wants to run things as easy as possible. He wants to shortcut his way to a national championship and it has almost worked it should have worked in 2017 has almost worked but that's what it is with lincoln is he just gets the best player in the country and it trickles down from there um, from the quarterback position and the last thing i'll say on it and alan matt peyton please feel free to tell me that i'm silly or whatever but I really, 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 really wish I was still on Keyhole after that Baylor game because that was the next game that that year before I had to stop podcasting. But Peyton might know this. Uh, Matt, you might know this um, just from us talking during that time. Uh, but after we lost to Baylor in Waco in a game where he puts Caleb Williams on the bench and puts in Spencer Rattler in a game, I think at that point, OU was still down maybe like seven or ten points. It was not over. I just kind of looked at my dad. I was watching with my dad at the time. I was like, we're not winning a title with this dude. We just, we aren't. He's not a leader. I don't know what the hell this is. I've seen OU lose games that they shouldn't. This is a, this is a disaster. 
this is awful. And the only way we can win a national title with Lincoln Riley is if he just accumulates the best talent overwhelming across the board, which he, the, the option is there for that to happen because of how he can recruit and attract talent. Um, but as a leader of a program, he's not winning us a national title. That is not OU fan saying this because he left my school and I hate him now. I truly believe that after we lost to Baylor in 2021 and therefore really wasn't that sad to see him go other than just the fact that his departure is a black mark on the legacy of the program. And he took Caleb Williams and a bunch of other players with him. Um, but that comes and goes. So that, that that's my little soliloquy on Lincoln Riley. I'm sorry. I hijacked the pod guys, but please feel free to jump off that. Well, Alan, you had mentioned before we started recording too. It's just the idea that how many how many shots does somebody get before someone says, oh, this is who you are? You know, I mean, Riley had, you know, we almost need the Danny Green of, they are who we thought we were. You know, we need them to slap on the podium, kind of screaming and yelling. Because you're right. I mean, it always gets, well, he'll figure it out. Of course he'll figure it out. Like, but what in the past of him as a coach has given you confidence to say, oh, of course, I mean, he, that he will. It's been a, rip, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's your favorite, it's your favorite track on repeat over and over and over again. The team's built exactly the same, performs exactly the same. And I think the issue with him and Ryan Day, in my personal opinion, is that they are at, you know, let's say you have to score 100 to win. They keep scoring 99. <laughs> it's just right there. And you can just squint and see how they win a national championship. And I think that is the issue. Like it, you want to in business, in my person, I mean, again, I think this is a thing that's kind of somewhat accepted. You need to fail hard and fail fast so then you can get up and move. But these long, slow fails that cause like, you know, like a corruption of the of the corporate structure or something, and maybe we can argue that's what happened in Oklahoma. That's where the issues start happening. You have to start paying that bill way down the line. But, I mean, what are your thoughts on that part of it? That when, when do we start saying, hey, Lincoln Riley just is who he is? Yeah, you know, right after um, that implosion that USC had in the Cobble against Tulane, um, everybody was like, oh, well, Lincoln Riley, he's got it. He's got to fire. He's going to fire Alex Grinch. Now, I mean, this is just unbelievable. How, how can a defense look this way? And I remember thinking, I've seen every OU defense for the, the previous five years have performances just like that, look that way. And I said something to the effect of, you know, I felt, I felt bad in a lot of ways for Grinch because I don't think that he wanted to go to USC, but he couldn't stay at OU. He, you know, had to, so we followed Riley out there, and now everyone was going to scapegoat him when the real issue is is Riley and the way that he prepares his teams, the way you know everything from. I mean, culture is overused, but I really think that it might be, uh, you know, the way to put this. I mean, he he needs if he wants to win a national championship. I mean, Pate said Pate kind of implied it in there. He needs to like literally overhaul the culture or, you know, do a 360 evaluation of everything that he's doing, right? The way that they're preparing, the off season, the strength and conditioning program. And there is there any evidence that he he's done that? I mean, all the same people are, are there. I mean, has he gone and talked to the people? I mean, that was part of the thing about when he was at OU is when people would talk about, well, you, you know, you, you lost this game or what have you. It's not, you know, fans are, fans are disappointed in that. And he would get real defensive about how well they're doing, you know, 
well, a lot of people wish they were winning 11 games, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay. But, like, there, there's a certain static, static to it, right? You know what I mean? Like, just it's the same it's the same show over and over and over. So when Pate says, I've got confidence that he'll get it figured out, he's a young guy, what would give you that confidence based on what we've seen? I just – that part of it I don't get. And so – the the long my I think my bigger point here is I think that Lincoln Riley is a phenomenal offensive coordinator and really a really really good head coach too, uh, great recruiter. My question is I don't feel like he's a particularly good. I I question his ability to be a steward of the program for the long haul. If that makes sense, that he starts off hot and you know gradually things erode over time. Well, Alan, I, I think referring to your latest article on, on through the keyhole, um, I would, I would argue that he's not a great recruiter. He's just really good at getting quarterbacks. Uh, yeah. You might. Yeah. I he's mean, really, yeah. he's really good at recruit. He's really good at recruiting in the moment in that he can get these highly recruited guys. The problem is they either don't develop because they were never destined to be good because they might've been overrated coming out of high school, or he just sucks as a, as a developer. And at some point we're going to get the answer to that definitively. Like there's going to be enough time and enough cycles where we can say, yeah, that seems like a Lincoln problem, not a, Oh, shucks. Like he's just had bad luck recruiting some highly recruited guys. Everybody thought you couldn't miss. Um, And I think the other, like the last thing would just be, you know, like Pate's whole, yeah, at some point he'll be able to figure it out. I think you can kind of, I guess, bleed that into my OU thought when he was still OU's head coach of the only way we can win a national title is if he just, those recruiting classes he's able to get, maybe they are actually like five-star receivers. Maybe they are actually highly recruited defensive players, like high-end four-stars. Maybe he just fortunately puts it together and his lack of being a leader or his lack of being a steward of the program, like you said, doesn't matter because I mean, fucking Gene Chizik has a ring. Yeah. Like it's at some point you just have the best players and it really doesn't matter. Matt Brown won a national title because he stopped coaching Vince Young. So at the end of the day, it's just, it just depends. Sometimes it just matters. Do you have the best players and it's the field around you just kind of lackluster? Yeah, no, I think, and I think that's actually a really good point too. I mean, I think that he had I, I he didn't, you know, rely on the whole, oh, we just gotta find the gyms out there and, and coach them up. I mean, which I think is the right opinion to take. I mean, you need to be saying we really need talented, good players. The problem is that I think he recruited a lot of times too much to the rankings. You know what I mean? Like for him, signing these all these blue chip guys was a big deal. You know, there was a whole lot of flash to it, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll say I've got one point on that thing where maybe it's less about Riley at this point in time, but Pate was saying, hey, well, where do you rank him? He's like, you know, it's kind of roll off. He's number five, six at worst, period, at that point in time. And my whole thought about that is how do you actually rank these coaches? I mean, at that point in time, like, what are you doing? Like, it's Saban, Dabo, and and Kirby Smart. You have to put those in the top three. More than likely, it's it should be, in my personal opinion, Saban, Dabo then smart and then you're going from there after that just kind of whatever at that point in time and opinion but you're still basing those off Saban being the big exclusion at that point in time how much they've won at the places they're at and Riley's only coached Oklahoma and USC and if you're not winning at Oklahoma and USC to a certain clip then you're not good to period but I mean there are a lot of times I remember the 2000 stuff when 
you know, I had the personal opinion that Bill Snyder is probably one of the top, what, five, ten best college football coaches of all time, potentially. Uh, and he had never even played for a national championship because he was at Kansas State. I mean, what are you going to do there? <laughs> at that point in time, he had that team two games, two separate years, back-to-back. If they don't lose the Nebraska game and then they don't lose the A&M the following year in the Big 12 championship, they're playing for a national championship at Kansas State. I mean, it's just – but he's never going to recruit a top – three class, you know, all that type of stuff. Like, how do you develop and how do you, how do you even rank these coaches at that point in time? I'm like, oh, there's a part of me you can say, well, put Chris, Chris Kleiman, give him the OU job, give him five years. What does he do? You know I mean? There, there's, there's a certain point at that time where ranking these people in any way, shape or form is just chum in the water for fan engagement at that point in time. Unless you're talking about Saban, who's just the number one of all time at this well, point. Well, in time. You're right, Peyton, just because I think it, it's silly to, you can rate every coach and rank them according to their list of accomplishments. And then therefore the list is fairly easy to kind of make. But if you're trying to decide, like, let's rank them according to how likely are they to win a national title or something like that, like to achieve greatness. I think what you can say in like using Bill Snyder is a really good example. Bill Snyder was elite at coaching in his own way. If Bill Snyder woke up one day and said, I want to coach like Lincoln Riley, he would have failed because he doesn't pull in the best quarterbacks in the country. Um, he, he doesn't come from that pedigree of coaching an offense like that. If Lincoln Riley decides to wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to coach like Nick Saban now, um, that he has nothing in his pedigree to suggest that he could run a program like Nick Saban. So I think with how Lincoln wants to run a program, I think you can pencil him in as a guy who can theoretically win a national title because in that broad list of how he runs a program one of the things is get best quarterback in country and that has proven every once in a while cam newton um vince young uh that has proven it can win you a national championship it can it can take a team of otherwise not spectacular not elite talent on either side of the ball to win you a national title so lincoln can in theory win one I just don't think so, uh, and I'm sure OU fans don't think so either. USC fans, they can, you know, they can believe whatever they want. Yeah, and you know, like one of the other things too is you can say, okay, well, USC was four and eight last year, then they go to eleven one. Like, just because the last guy sucked doesn't make you know, you doing really well some kind of incredible achievement. It could just be the last guy was really fucking bad. I mean, good night. How bad was John Blake? And look at Bob Stoops, right? I mean, but, you know, just the idea that Clay, that being better than Clay Helton or that Clay Helton, it was so bad that he, you know, eroded USC to the point where they were, you know, where, you know, eight wins might have been a good year or what have you. Like, so what? That doesn't mean that, that Lincoln Riley, you shouldn't be expecting him with that level of talent there or at a place like OU that you shouldn't be expecting him to win 10, 11, 12 games in a year. I mean, they've got so much better players than everybody else that they're going up against. Clay Helton would have won a 10 or 11 games if Caleb Williams just woke up and said, yeah, I'm going to go to USC. I, I think so. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, that's If I'm a diehard USC fan and I've seen what happens with Lincoln Riley, like with the OU experience, and as hopeful as I am for the future, I'm thinking, I hope Malachi Nelson is good because if he isn't, then I don't know what what where this leads because if he's not good, 
Caleb's going to be gone after this year. And Caleb is the reason why they were – Lincoln's good. He he helped USC. He did more than help. But Caleb Williams is winning those games. I'm sorry. Or Lincoln rallies Osborne, and it takes him 20 years to get it figured out <laughs> to, to finally go over the top and go over the hump. But those, those type of – coaching careers just don't exist anymore at this point in time. Uh, but one of our uh, friends of the pod, uh, Rob Bowron, was doing his uh, sharp, uh, sharp college football rankings, has Michigan, like, I think three overall coming to the season. And he kind of talked about, Brigitte, what you're talking about. He's like, the era of big offense is seems to be over. And now a team like Michigan is very much so poised because the, the field has come back to earth to a certain degree uh, from that time for some of these teams to now maybe not elevate themselves, but be on the level playing field at that point in time. Cause like Michigan was never going to be scoring 50 and 60. It's just not how they are, not how they're built. But now if nobody's doing it, you know, it really helps out a lot. And it's it just how it is at that point in time. But I always kind of get weirded out when we're doing some of these rankings because every situation is different. There's no salary cap. There's no way of doing these things. There's no way of like really showing this type of thing at that point in time. Uh, one more social media topic and then, uh, we've got a game, which I think we'll probably have to save for, for next week to allow us to kind of make sure we're not taking up everyone's time in the world. Uh, but just the idea that was kind of going on social, um, Bill Conley was tweeting out the uh, the idea of fourth down and when to go for it and who um, is benefiting from going from that. Uh, on that chart, OU was conservative and it hurt them. <laughs> they did not go for it enough on fourth down and they weren't able to gain any sort of advantage by punting. Uh, OU was like the opposite of Iowa. <laughs> you know, you don't punt the win. Uh, uh, OU probably, in my opinion, would have been better to be a little bit more aggressive, but that just belies the fact that OU just wasn't a good football team last year, and uh, it would have potentially given them some more wins, but wouldn't it would just been window dressing of this is a very, very average football team at this point in time. They almost perfectly average across the board, uh, so, you know, at six and seven. Uh and it was kind of talked in here about where are you getting some efficiencies, where are you losing some efficiency by, is there a way to counter pitch this to a certain degree or counter swing this? Uh, and the idea of playing football in an optimal way kind of introduced itself into this conversation. Now I'm going to tee you up a little bit there. Do you think college football, even just the concept of playing the game optimally, <laughs> does that even it work. Does that even exist in any way, shape, or form? Because you could really argue the service academies. I mean, if you're you're doing four yards of pop, you're gonna score <laughs> if, if you can pull it off that way. But I don't think people would consider that an optimal way uh, you know, to play offense nowadays. Yeah, you know, I think the part like I got into it, I discussed a little this a little bit with Bud Elliott um of uh twenty four seven sports on Twitter because uh, you know, Bud's argument was my my argument is that you know in a lot of ways what coaches like Joey McGuire he was brought up in Bill's article as being kind of the uh, archetype here because he was super aggressive on fourth down uh, and you know his team really kind of outperformed where they should have and the idea was well what happened is they real they got a couple good fourth down breaks and uh, that put them in position to get some you know uh, unexpected scores. Uh, in games like against Texas, for example, or OU even, where, you know, that being really aggressive on fourth down really helped him. And, uh, you know, Bud described that as, you know, he likened it. And my my opinion is if we don't exactly know why that works so well on fourth down for Joey McGuire, but it could be that, you know, teams 
weren't, for example, accustomed to the idea of other teams being really aggressive on fourth down. So how defenses approach first, second, and third down changes based on, you know, what uh, what they're expecting on fourth down. If you're expecting a team to punt, you're willing to concede, say, six yards on third and seven. Well, you know, you think you've done your job, but then you've got to go back out there and play one more down, right? Um, so you, know, you really don't know where necessarily the uh, the value in that came in. Um, and my opinion is if more teams adopt the we're going to be really aggressive on fourth down strategy that McGuire or Dave Aranda, for example, at Baylor have where, I mean, Dave Aranda was going for it on, you know, his team's own 30 in some games last year, you know, in the middle of the game, which is just kind of unheard of. But the more you do that, teams are going to adjust for that more. And so really, to a degree, you're just kind of taking advantage right now of maybe – for lack of a better word, an inefficiency on the part of other teams. But once that changes, you know, like you mentioned, the kind of the window dressing aspect of it, um, you know, if you're not able to do the kind of blocking and tackling stuff, if most of your, um, if most of your value is generated through stuff like converting and being really aggressive on fourth down when other teams aren't necessarily accustomed to it, like that's a very short lived edge. Yeah. It reminds me, and man, I listen to so many financial historical podcasts, so I, I'm going to mix and match a couple of things. And Alan, please forgive me or correct me. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but basically, he saw there's an inefficiency in the um, in the sterling in the sterling or the pound or whatever it was. So he's in America, and he was buying pounds or, or the sterling silver or whatever for a certain price and transferring it back over to the American dollar. And he's able to get like 50 cents to the dollar or something like that. Something to do with stamps uh, at that point in time over the, yeah, cause there wasn't, everything wasn't connected in the same way. And this, this industry, this little thing he kind of built up, um, you know, he's, it was very short lived cause there's, in a, there's a, a inefficiency in between those two markets. He's able to just basically make money out of thin air <laughs> by doing this. Um, I believe it was stamps, uh, but please it's, Please correct me if I'm wrong. If anybody remembers this or knows what I'm talking about, but it, it's like it's a fakeness. It doesn't exist. I mean, there is no once everyone, like you said, once everyone kind of equalizes or everyone kind of realizes, oh, this is what's just going to happen now. You lose it Im- immediately. But Matt, I want to ask you a question. Uh, did you play NCAA 14? Absolutely. Yeah. Did you have the Did you have the uh, oh, the, down, the, the, stuff, the team yeah. and stuff? Uh, did you did you guys in, uh, implement any sort of like self control rules on when it came to fourth down? Oh yeah, when you're playing with your buddies, yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, we, if it was like if it was longer than I think fourth and eight, you had to punt. Yes, we had um, that too. Like, we had like an online. Unless dynasty. you're like unless you're in the fourth quarter, right, and you have to go for it. Unless yeah. that, but yeah, it's like if it's the second quarter and it's like fourth and twelve from your own 20 like no you gotta punt it dude <laughs> yeah See, we, punt, we had, I, we had I, that I'd as well third, i'd punt on third and six if i played you yeah take my surprise <laughs> take my surprise yeah pin them deep no we had that exact same rule and i just can't i mean i can't imagine i mean how much it would just infuriate me you know it's like the third quarter i was up by 10 and some guy starts going for it on fourth and seven but he's like yeah but i was actually down in the second half and the rules say it's like come on dude you gotta play it but i cannot imagine how it would be to be an actual defensive coordinator now it's just like you just have to defend. I mean, there is no non defense. You have to defend every single play. I mean, I, I know that sounds dumb or whatever, but there isn't a um, an expectancy uh, at, at this point in time. And to Alan's point, as soon as the expectation, you know, kind of introduces itself, 
things are going to change and all of a sudden we're going to be we're going to hear you know in a few years people saying teams should be punting more <laughs> field position is mean, actually very valuable <laughs> i really do think so if, if you start thinking about it if my team's not good <laughs> and yes. all of a sudden i'm going for it all the time and i'm giving the ball away you know on my own 30 i'm going to get killed so you know i mean like the idea that you it, football doesn't it just people don't understand a lot of times how analytics and decision making or analytics should be applied to decision making in football or how it even like the interplay i, I get it's very hard for me to explain because I don't necessarily have the the proper knowledge of statistics to to or, or the ability to verbalize it. But you know, these are the kinds of things where people are like, "Oh, well, I mean, you know, he's he's been working with a statistician that says that you should go for it." And this, no, there's like that that does not translate into football. It just it does not work. I think as I think as it pertains to like OU fans, like on this topic, if you're thinking about the West Virginia situation where um, I believe we tried to, I think we kicked a field goal instead of going for it on fourth and short to potentially ice the game, but we, I think, tried to kick a field goal to what tie it. I can't remember what the exact situation was. They were trying but, to take. They were trying to win, to take the lead. Yeah. Yes. Um, but Brent was asked about it in the post game. Why didn't you go for it on fourth and short there? to uh, really ice to try to ice the game. And he said, I just felt like in that situation, we weren't going to get it. And that seemed to feed us, but that's, I think, kind of talking to what one is speaking to is there are so many factors involved with football that just looking at like, hey, this calculation suggests you should go for it more on fourth down. So many factors are involved in that. You can't always go for it on fourth down. You can't always go for it on fourth and one. Just like there are times where you can go for it on fourth and six because of momentum, because of how things are going, because maybe a player on the defense gets hurt and you like a matchup all of a sudden that just simply wasn't there. So I think as it pertains to OU fans, um, and I, I think I talked about this on the Patreon pod with uh, the UTEP rewatch, um, we could have beaten Texas last year and lost to Iowa State. So still go six and seven, but you know, beat Texas, yay. I'd still feel exactly the same about this team. You know, it's like, great, we beat Texas. That's awesome. But, I mean, that's what we've done for the last 20 years is beat them. Um, we are still a bad team. So, going forward on fourth down here and there might have given us a win or two. Cool. But I would still feel like, man, that was a bad, bad, bad season. And there are reasons for that. Um, but, yeah, and I think if you're going to use, like, Baylor and Texas Tech as examples as to why, like, there is some level of merit to uh, – some this stat has some merit programs like tech and Baylor. They're coming from a position of weakness and that they are punching up. That's why they go for it on fourth down all the time. Oh, you should never be in a position to feel like we have to go for it on fourth down every play or every, every situation. There's a fourth down. We've got better players. We've got more money. We've got better coaching staffs. There's no reason to what OU needs to do is wipe off that, that reputation, that, our opponents decide, hey, if it's third and 10, all we got to do is get five or six yards because then we can go for it. We need to take that away. And on offense, just run your offense. And hopefully, you know, this season with more experience under Levy and another year of Dylan Gabriel, um, those third and mediums are either converted or 
they're able to get extra yards so that, hey, let's go for it on fourth down. So it's a fourth and short instead of a fourth and medium, because that's not a recipe for success. And that was a lot of the reasons that that played into a lot of the reasons why we were six and seven last year. I think playing around the edges is fun, but you want to be kicking ass. Like you do not want to be in a position where it matters what you do on fourth down. That's my take. Yeah, because those those programs that are coming from a place of weakness, they barely beat OU, and they do all these things correct. Like they they play OU, and everything goes right, and they win by three at the end of regulation or in overtime. So it's like, what does that say? It's like you can't just apply that to OU. Like it, it doesn't work that way. OU wants to kill these teams. These teams want to basically just beat us by a point so they can tell their fucking grandkids about it forever. Now, I, I think that, I think maybe like uh, infinity war, it's kind of like microwaved a certain uh, aspect of our culture's brain when it comes to this, you know, you got Dr. Strange being like, there's one way of that we win, you know, you're like, so you're playing for that one way. And I remember Lane Kiffin got all kinds of praise uh, in the Alabama game where he kept going for a fourth down and they just get completely dog walked out of the stadium. But everyone kept saying this was his own one way. He had one way to win and that was to go for a fourth down against a much better team and just get completely crushed for it. And the reality is, is like, well, you only, let's say we had a 20% chance of winning that game. You go, you get these fourth downs and all of a sudden your 20% and goes up to like 25%, but missing it, you go to zero. Like what, what, what smart, like, how does that the, work in the math? It's not, it's not even an absolute either where, okay, so we should do the opposite and be conservative because no, you can get yourself beat by being conservative. Who was the uh, Tennessee coach when we beat them at Knoxville? What was his name? He's Butch, a, Jones, Butch, right? Butch Jones. Butch Jones. That first drop, well, we had the ball first. We threw a pick and then they drove the field. They got down to the inch line and they kick a field goal that's cowardice that is like trying to be that that's trying to be way too like i'm football smart like no you dumbass go for it like the crowd there's hundred twenty five thousand people screaming go for it if you don't get it what's all you gonna do go 99 yards just idiot so yeah the 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 point of this is just it's not one way or the other you have to oh you just needs to kick ass and the opposite of not going for it every fourth down is not being ultra conservative either. Well, guys, that brings us to the uh, the wrap of our show, running a little bit long on those very fun, very spirited topics that we had there. Uh, we did have one saved in the back pocket for next week, so get ready for the fill-in-the-blank game in which uh, we'll be handling at that point in time. Um, I myself will not be on Sunday's podcast. Spoiler alert, I'll be on an airplane headed to Washington, D.C. Um, so the the, uh, the guys here, the three of them, will be able to take care of uh, take care of the show from that perspective. Uh, but as always, make sure that you're, you're following us uh, on our uh, Twitter, um, uh, at Keyhole Podcast, and all of us personally be in the show notes. And also hit up Vanessa House and scratch the co- uh, kitchen and cocktails and uh, Norman, hit them up. Make sure they know where you come from. And then we appreciate it. Make sure you follow us on the uh, patreon.com slash through the keyhole but for myself for alan and brady matt get us out of here boomer sooner <laughs>